Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more of Walter's music. Thank you, Davine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM there on Wall Street, downtown Asheville. We appreciate it. And if you'd like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. Nave spelled N-A-V-E. I would love to hear from you. I would also like to remind you this show is sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Project. If you would like to know more about how to improve your writing, imaginativestorm.com is a good place to look. Now I would like to welcome Ileana Garzateran to the microphone. I met Ileana at a cafe with a group of friends, and when we sat down and started to talk, I realized she would be an absolutely perfect guest for Twice Five Miles Radio. So I invited her, she said yes, and because she said yes, you're now going to get to enjoy what I enjoyed when I first met Ileana at the cafe. So let's dive right in. I started the interview asking her to tell us about why language is so important in our world today, and here's what she said, so enjoy. The first thinking or the first thought that I have is that most of the people take language as a currency. They use it just for a transaction and um, they miss completely what language is. You have different languages and some people will explain that those languages have a difference only because they come from a different root. And as a philosopher, because I am Firstly, a philosopher and then a poet. I would like to say language is more rhizomatic reality, more than a root. So there's always some kind of violence that is good to embrace when you're talking about language. Language shouldn't be comprehended or understood as something that is just like a fixated reality. Language is something that should be a little bit like an animal living with you, the animal element in you. I know that this seems a little bit uh, metaphorical because language tends to be the most intellectual of our abilities and our motor skills are considered more animal or our instincts. But what we do through language, especially in poetry, is to take all the elements that are constituent of our nature in our experiences and put them through words into the other's scope. Um, I was saying the other day that poetry should, should be or is like having a skin. And so if you want to touch through words, you're inside poetry. If you touch someone else, through your poetry, you're giving to them also the possibility of taking from there and put it in their own way back. Meaning that poetry shouldn't be just like teaching. When I write poetry, when someone writes poetry, they shouldn't be feeling complete or feeling 
fulfilled just because they wrote a poem, just because they published a collected poems book. It's more than that. When you write poetry, you really want to mess up all things a little bit. Um, because poetry makes you change your way of thinking and it's happening in the time. Sometimes some people like teachers would say like, yeah, but you have to put it on paper. And yeah, it is true. Poetry uh, claims for paper like a lover claims for going to bed with, with the loved one. Sometimes when your lover is there, you just want to observe your lover. You don't need to lie behind. You don't, lie, you don't need to stay there. The proximity can become something very contemplative. In poetry, that reality occurs. The white page is there, you want to write, but it is already in your mind. It is already in your throat, because I do believe that poetry has to do with the body. And so when you take the time on the page and to put it with all the shapes of the letters and of the vowels and listening and rehearsing and finding the best prose, best melody, you're working, but you already had it since the beginning. And I do believe that the contemplative aspect is very hidden in our society. When you're a poet, people want you to publish and they seem to be more interested in you to being published and not in the content of your poetry, which is pretty shameful. Beckett, when he wasn't writing poetry, he was someone who was translating, he was someone who was writing theater, he was someone else than a poet. He started to switch into French as his main language to write poetry, to write uh, dot because of the poems that he was trying to get out in French. So poetry was his infancy steps when he was trying to speak in a different language. And then he goes to this land where language becomes something else than just orthodoxy, grammar orthodoxy, like a kind of agreement in between peoples. He wanted to go on the contrary sense of Joyce, and he was trying to get away from the richness of his language to express in a different one that wasn't his mother tongue, as we used to say. And he started to write in French, and then at the, end, at the very end, he just wrote in French, point. So, for example, I, I was born in Mexico, when I was 21, I went to live to France, and I lived in France for many years, and I studied ancient languages like Hebrew, Latin, Greek, Aramaic. And nowadays, my reference language for meanings can be Greek or can be French, and not forcefully Spanish. So when someone asks me about what is your uh, mother tongue or what is your language? To me, the definition of language cannot be simplistically an idiom expressed by an idiom or by any limits 
or even a country, a land, history. I believe we were talking about that last time because to me it's very important. I write in French and I write in English and I write in Spanish and I've been exploring all the tensions and sometimes I know that I can go farther in a specific language for certain tricks, let's say it. My abilities are so developed that there's no risk to take and I like the risk. So that's why I could find fascinating to write a poem in Latin because it would be more risky than to write a poem in Spanish or in French. When you talk about risks that we take, and you hear that all the time, people are always talking about how many risks they take. When you talk about taking risks with language in writing, what's at stake for you, the, the poet, the artist, the writer? It's not just provocation, but it is to stress language itself and also the meanings and the history of those vocabularies, because it's more than words. It's the vocabularies and the grammars and the ways we've been using language. Let's say that, for example, for Latin, if you learn Latin at the university, you will be reading the classics, the Romans, and then you will read the medieval philosophers and theologians mostly, especially if you study in Europe. And so your Latin vocabulary will be very specific. And you have all the history of philosophy, for example, that could be explained or mise en lumière uh, explained and uh, developed through linguistic twists, like for example, Descartes, cogito ergo sum, uh, je pense j'existe, I think, oh, that means that I am. And he's taking from all this uh, Latin that comes from theology. And so if in the 21st century in New Mexico, take cogito ergo sum and I twist the sense and I change the sense and I try to write it maybe in Navajo or in another language, I will be playing and I will be stressing, trying to put there something that is beautiful and also looking for that beauty more than the historical weight of those words and the one conception, because universities are very univocal. So um, they will tell you, okay, so this is a history of philosophy. Cogito ergo sum means this, and that's it. You have this definition of this sentence. Take it as it is. You cannot move a finger from it. And I'm saying, no, the contrary. You can move whatever you want, because that is what the poet is allowed to do play with language and move it and twist it and say something beautiful that breaks the rules and that breaks even the, the sharpest thinking of the, let's say, 18th century or 17th century or 21st century. So more like that, I would say, James. You were mentioning earlier about violence in language and, of course, people listening in Asheville and Taos I know many folks who try to avoid violence. It's a human condition. How can you avoid violence? It's there with us. You stub your toe, if you know what I mean. What do you 
mean when you talk about violence in language? Although we do know language can get people stirred up. Yes, when I'm talking about violence, it's a very, very precise fashion. Meaning that coming from Mexico City, I do know what violence is and I wouldn't be um, for it. Of course not. I, I went to the march uh, for the, against women's violence or violence against women. And it's not that violence that I'm talking about. Linguistic violence, needs, it's related to an epistemological break, a crush, something that happens in your mind, in your sensibility, that finally allows you to say something true and something metaphysically poignant, strong, to come and call the attention of the one who is reading, of the one who is listening, of the one who is loved. Because when you write a poem, it could sound cheesy to say this, but when you write a poem, you could also think about someone that is listening to you. And in that sense, I don't want to think they are like the audience. To me, they, it, it is someone that I kind of love in a certain way. Why? Because I'm opening something that is precious to me, and I am desiring that presence of an ear of a face of a sensibility that can be the echo of what I'm saying. Maybe if I'm in the middle of, a, of the plateau or if I'm in my room alone, I'm desiring that presence. So to me, that violence, it's linked to aesthetics, to epistemology, to love and to language, nature in itself. Imagine how violent it is to say that once upon a time there was an alphabet that was written in the backward sense, or that before Latin people were talking in Greek, or before Greek they were talking in Hebrew. And then koine, the same currency, Everyone starts to speak the same language. Everyone wants to speak in the same terms. Everyone wants to become understandable. But what is that level of intelligibility? It's not exactly the strongest appreciation of life. It's not the strongest appreciation of experience. It's just, if you like blue, I like blue, we will talk blue language. Blue, blue, blue. And then another friend comes. We will teach her the blue language. We will speak blue. We are civilized because we speak blue. But what if I decide that I don't want to see blue, but I want to see gray in that blue, and I want to speak gray-blue language? Well, I am allowed to give more shapes and more forms and mess it all up to create poetry. To me, poetry should mess it all up and should be violent, linguistically violent. Well, our environment is violent from that point of view. I went out with a friend of mine, Tony Houston, years ago with his falcon, and he took me out and he said, let's go hunting with the falcon. We went not too far from here, maybe 50 miles, and we were hunting, or he was flying his falcons and trying to catch ducks, lifting off the ponds. And I was standing there, it was late afternoon, and Tony 
came up to me and said, look around, look at how beautiful this land is. Look at some of these creatures here. It's just absolutely peaceful and beautiful and everything is eating everything else all the time. <laughs> and that drove home the notion of disruption, yeah. change, transition. And when we work with language, it changes us. It does rearrange our psychologies. And that is, I believe, the violence that you're talking about or something like that. Yes, I, I really love your image, if I can call it an, an image, because it's more like an experience, but experiences become images. And look, for example, the mouth. We were fed by our mothers and we drank their milk and we started to move our mouths and started to speak. So language comes from that will, that surviving, survival desire, you know? You're, you want to leave, you want to eat, you want to take, but you also want to express something new. And so when I write, normally I go to the very rudiments of language, the vowels, the, the, you know, even in Hebrew, uh, the sounds, the different sounds, the guttural sounds, and it becomes something way more tasty, something more important and significant in my day. If I had only a dictionary, I do love dictionaries, and I have many of them since I am very, very young. Those were like my favorite books when I was, yeah, 14 years old. Different languages, and yes, Indo-European roots and whatever. Language should become uh, something that you take and you give back. Language is not just meant to become an apartheid or a territory or this sacred place where only the great poets go and where only um, the intelligent people can have access. Language should be elegant and sharp and powerful in every person. That's why, for example, me, I can be translating Deleuze, <laughs> which is a pretty subtle task, and also um, enjoying so much teaching a second language to a kid, because I love the questions of that kid, and I love to see how he's creating a new language in his mind, in his surroundings. So yeah, I really like your image. It's like something unexpected. Language should be unexpected. The minute that you have a definition of it, the minute you say, this is it, universities teach this, and that is literature, you are completely <laughs> on the way to death, to the tomb, I guess. Because then you don't have anything to say. And it's like a house. I was thinking in that analogy the other day. You can walk around your house and you know each corner. But if your brain and if your mind and if you are there, each time should be different. And each time should give you a different image. That's the poet. The poet, I, I, will, I will always say that. The poet is the artist of the earth, of the of the touch, of the, of the dust. We are the artists of 
the dust. We need to touch the dust and translate dust into words and into images that are way more powerful than the dust itself. You mentioned earlier good, good poetry. You are obviously well endowed with a range of understanding around how language works, and you've given it a lifetime of thought. Often in this show, when I am talking with people like you at your level, I ask them, and I'm going to ask you to do this too, reflect for the people who are sitting there listening to this show thinking, well, when, when will I be good? Will I ever be good? How do I know if I am good at this? And how does that idea of good work as a positive motivator rather than so often a block? Because I'm, just not, I'm, not, I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. I'm not educated enough. I'm not this, 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 and this. Good. When does something become good? Yeah. Well, there's this um, magnificent first page of, I will go from something very general to something very specific. Um, Aristotle says in his first page of the Nicomachean Ethics that good can be a horse, good can be your friend, uh, good can be a medicine or something. I am quoting grosso modo, so very freely. So good is something that is good for you, first of all. Good is not a value. I am really against Max Scheller's philosophy of values, which makes everything super abstract. And so good is good for who and who is going to judge me. That has nothing to do with what is good, first. Second, I could say, like, I'm super bad at, at writing. Who knows? Who's going to tell me that, I, that I'm good or that I'm bad? Some people have said to me that I'm good. Some other don't really understand me. And some other people will say, well, she's crazy. If I am emulating Beckett or playing with Brodsky's philo uh, poetry because I'm doing something silly, you know, I'm just, but I love it. And it's good. <laughs> so I would say that nobody can tell you that you're good or you're bad and that you can write. I believe that the discipline that I've learned is something that I embraced be mostly because I loved the activity of repeating and rehearsing. So I also want to say like, when you already failed at something, that's a big part of succeeding in another one. Because, for example, when I was 13 years old, I, I quit playing piano. And I said to myself, I want to be a philosopher, I don't want to be a musician. And so I quit Beethoven and I quit uh, all the musicians that I really love, but I quit playing the piano. And so the more and more I grew up trying to understand things by themselves and not trying to prove anything to anyone. And then it became good. So I cannot say that I'm 
good as a poet for the whole world or even for my poetry teacher, who knows? Or for my mother, let's get in words. <laughs> you know, mothers tend to lie for those kind of things. But I know I'm good because I'm doing something that it's, it has a sense and I'm twisting and I'm moving and I'm, I'm, I'm there alive, waking up knowing that there's nothing else that I can do with so much passion, with so much, much intensity. And the other day I was thinking, I could sacrifice, and that was a word, which is very like medieval if you want, but I could put something aside, let's say it in that way, only because I want to write and I want to listen to it. Because normally when I write, I listen and so, and it becomes more fascinating. And I believe that's the, the only judge is the poem or you or, or no, let's say the ability to continue. The ability to continue, that's, that's goodness. Being able to continue no matter the result. So if you're doing the work and you're continuing, showing up, moving, moving in the mess, in the dust, in the dirt, in all of that mucky, mucky stuff that we have to indulge ourselves in in order to have something eventually emerge. If you're doing that, it's safe to say then it is good. You can declare that a good thing and move on. And if somebody reads what you write and they say, I would like to keep this, mm -hmm. thank you very much, mm -hmm. I really appreciate this, hey, day's work done. Yes, I believe the great poets for me, or the great writers for me, had that sense, like Burroughs or Gregory Corso or yeah, Beckett. They could say like, oh, nobody likes my work or nobody understands me. Beckett could say that. <laughs> Nevertheless, he continued, he continued t till the end of his life. And then, wow, he was just uh, amazing old Paris with on attendant Godot, on theater, on stage, there, with a guy just taking out his shoe. So goodness will impose by itself. The artist don't measure the goodness of his, her, or their work. The artist just work. Come, like Camus says, l'artiste au travail, the artist at work just occurred to me when you said goodness will impose itself on the work. Never really thought of goodness as something that's out there in the world. I've often thought of creativity as part of the species imperative for all living things. Goodness, interesting, it comes to you, you don't come to it. I believe the great things attract you before you feel any attraction. I remember once someone very special said to me that I was in love with someone and they said to me, well, if you are attracted to this person is because that person is already attracted to you. And I was willing to believe that. <laughs> Maybe it was naive, 
but I believe it ex expresses a metaphysical truth. And believe me, I've been studying even theology, so I've been debating about metaphysics and goodness and good and in Greek, in Latin, in Hebrew. And I, I can stay to the simplest meaning of goodness, which is, c'est bon, it's good. And it could be something very simple. And that's why poets also tend to have a very simple life. Even if they are famous or whatever, the simplest things can become the fire of their poetry. You were mentioning when we spoke the first time about some of the writing groups you were in mm -hmm. and how your approach to being published or not being published, how your approach to language, the violence of it, the disruption, the breaking apart, putting back together, sometimes disrupts or breaks apart the poetry group itself. <laughs> Since, since I was very young, I like to put a little bit of, um, of trouble inside any group. You know, it's a pleasure and it's a game. It's not in a, in a bad, I don't have any mean purposes. I believe that when everyone says yes to the teacher, when everyone just admits something as a principle, we're already dead. You have to be able to see the difference, as my mother would say, thinking out of the box, really see things in a different, completely, in a completely different perspective. And so sometimes to push a little bit, to challenge your peers, it's good because then they will give you, uh, if they are strong enough, they will give you a kickback and that will make creative process even better. I don't believe in competition. Competition exists, of course, but that is like a very basic thing that happens. So more than competition, I believe it's more, it's exciting to be showered by different people, different ways of writing, and to say, uh, I don't like this, I don't like that, but I'm able to do this, and I'm able, and you're able probably to do this too. Let's see how, how it works. And it should always be creative. And you know, I was re reading exactly Burroughs in an interview talking about the ragas, these Japanese collective poems. And there's no competition there, there's just creativity. The poets are burned by language itself. So to me, that would be a good starting point. If I'm with different poets, which is very rare for me. But when I'm with other people that are, have poetry in their, in their hands and that want to write poetry, I want it to become more like a common raga and then each one have their own poetry. And I respect that. But some trouble is always good. You've mentioned literature, theology, philosophy, you said you left beloved music behind. I would interpret that to mean you probably don't play, but I'll bet you have an ear still for it. I hope so. <laughs> what about mathematics? Yes, well, my father is a little bit, uh, he's a chemist and he was very sharp in mathematics. And I went to a Montessori school when I was a child. So mathematics and space are very present. And so, 
I was very bad for traditional mathematics, but my teachers would always say like, you have an aesthetic point of view. And I was like, yeah, whatever. But then I have to say that I'm pretty sharp in mathematics, but in a very different way. And so, for example, I was having this analogy, founding this analogy the other day, that encoding was a little bit like translating. When you encode and you're looking for an algorithm, all the mathematical thinking is present. And there's something creative there. It's not just like I'm giving you a binary responsive uh, and automatic uh, way of acting. I am giving you an algorithm and in the end, the one who wrote the algorithm wants the other one to crack it. It's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit egotistic, I believe. But it's more like, ah, can you crack me? And so, yeah. And when you're cracked, you want to continue and make another algorithm. When you're translating or when you're writing poetry, there's a level in your poetry and a level in your translation that it's like that. You want to crack, you want to hit a sweet spot that it's completely uncrackable. And when it's cracked, you're laughing because you're already creating the next algorithm, the next translation, the next poem, the next line. And are you deeply familiar with coding or is this just something you have it's a something I, It just came recently and I was like, yeah, I should take a course of it. When you were younger and... I you know, I did a PhD... Uh, course of, on the history of mathematics. Yes, I did. And that was pretty fascinating. So how can you do a PhD course in mathematics, history of mathematics, and avoid any kind of equations? Did you <laughs> yes, manage that's that? It, that's it, of course. Because in the history of mathematics, you see how thinking behind the theorems is happening. So you have to be very analytical and see, you know, it's fascinating especially when you have great mathematicians teaching you. That was the case I was at the UNAM, the National University in Mexico City. And this guy was accepting me. He knew I was a philosopher and he said, yes, come to my course, I'll take you. And I was fascinated with his classes. And of course, when you it's a little bit dramatic because mathematics are in schools, even in private schools and in public schools, very, very badly uh, teached, you know. So kids tend to reject them very easily because they want to automatize answers. And so the poet, the philosopher is against, the musician is against automatizing. You want to understand. So like Glenn Wood looking how to play uh, Beethoven and Bach fastly. He had to be sitting down to play faster. In mathematics, the same thing should happen. You have to be able to be creative in mathematics. So that's why you have a lot of people going to schools for encoding and less people going to the traditional ways of using mathematics. Yeah, I believe that's pretty possible. A fellow named Frederick Nims offers a whole chapter in his textbook called Western Wind on Mathematics, and he brings up the Fibonacci 
sequence and says, well, all plants can be categorized by that, the Fibonacci sequence. Uh, yeah. The bodies can be categorized to that, as that. Everything in nature has mathematical construction. Definitely. I, I am pretty sure of it. There was a time when I was writing only um, in a very mathematical fashion, but with words. And actually, this teacher uh, for the PhD history of mathematics course was saying that, that when you touch the, the highest level in mathematics, you don't use symbols, you use words. So mathematicians use, use words to express whatever they are discovering. And we're talking about people who discover theorems, not about people that are uh, adding or doing equations in a mechanical way. We're talking about discoverers. So as we move toward the last 15 minutes or so of our time together, you are sitting here on a nice chair next to my chair with T.S. Eliot's four quartets in your lap, considered one of the hefty pieces of work in, in English literature. Of course, there's a big body of work all over the world that would probably match what he's done here. You are a lot more aware of that than I am, but why are you carrying this book around? First of all, I have to admit that as Jean Genet, who stole a Verlaine book, <laughs> very expensive and first edition, I do have a crush for first editions. I took this uh, from uh, a coffee shop in Santa Fe because it was there um, two, two days ago. And I know T.S. Eliot because of, in my poetry course, or uh, they were giving T.S. Eliot kind to replicate the musicality of his, his words. And I got very deep into it. I, I, I went back to Beethoven quartets and to Dvorak and to any different quartets. And I studied them and I wrote my own poem following the musicality of Eliot, uh, counting each syllable and replicating you know, and even going to the Kohilit, because there are some aspects of the musicality that he takes from other musicalities. It's like Pound, when he was inspired by Asians or by Latins to write his own poetry with different cadences, not the English, not the American. And so I was reading him again, and uh, of course this is a great great composition because it's brief and but it it is philosophical it is theological it is perfectly poetical it is strong and uh, and I do believe that this is one of the most uh, beautiful pieces that have been written in America um, I love William Carlos Williams I I love Ezra Pound, even E.E. E. Cummings, and some other poets from America, Whitman, of course. But T.S. Eliot touched something very specific, and it's also like a quartet, something very brief, some, something that is somehow ephemeral, that 
occurs and then disappears. And that's why I like the, the quartets. And to me, habuk and words are always to be there just to, to nourish you. And of course, in my beginning is my end is one of my favorite lines. Why don't you read the opening of the four quartets? I think the first one is Burnt Norton. It's, it's four sections, four yes, quartets. Yes, it's four, four quartets and different movements. And I was kind of in love with the first and the last one because the first one is to me the, the purest because it was the first that he wrote and it's kind of a little bit rougher uh, in the structure and the form, but it is amazing. And well, I'm not an English speaker by nature, but I will do my best to read you some of the lines. Well, please do. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction, remaining a perpetual possibility, only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to, no, to one end, which is always present. Footfalls echo in the memory, down the passage, which he did not take, towards the door we never opened, into the rose garden. My words echo thus in your mind. And it continues. <laughs> well, it continues for, I think, 57 yes. minutes if you read it out loud, the length yes, of yes, it is this amazing. show. I've always liked that opening line. I try to get it's time past and time present are both perhaps present mm -hmm. in time future and time future contained in time past, I think, yes. is how it goes. Yes. It's so refreshing for me to hear those lines read and to reflect on those lines because really we have nothing except just this second and the second, you know, every second invites you to enter what you don't know. And when you're in what you don't know, you are following that little bird in that poem mm -hmm. down the path into the garden that you may or may not continue following. Who knows? Yes. As a philosopher and a poet, I would say that you die and you live in the minute. And it all happens in the same minute. And that's why this is beautiful, because it reaches the, the essence of, of what's life. And that's the voice of the poet. He touches what is to be human. And that is bigger than being a poet. But of course, as he is a poet, he can say it with so much 
force, with so much passion, with so much clarity, that it will hit you directly in the heart. And how can we close this time together without the Duende? <laughs> because you're entering into that realm right now. The yes. way you look, the way you're looking at me, the force of your eyes, it's loaded with the Duende, which of course is from the Spanish yes. tradition. Well, I have to say that, and I have to mention him because he's my guardian angel, Lorca, uh, is a Spanish poet who describes, who touches the best El Duende. El Duende is how you are possessed and how can you go beyond your own ability to express something because it's stronger than you are and you're just the messenger, you're only the, the one, the witness. You're just there and you let it pass. And it's like Deleuze says, it's a passing intensity and it's to be seen, it's to be just perceived and then it will go. It's also part of the idea that death is in the shadows. Death is also underneath us. Death is all around us all the time, back to the violence of the language. Mm -hmm. Yes, because language will go, but the sound of the words of the people you love will remain quiet, but will remain in your ear, in your heart. And that's what poetry does. It's like a living dead who is calling you, who is talking to you, only to see it, only to pay respect, only to be honored and to be loved in a very quiet way. Language should end in silence, but that silence is only possible because of words. Ileana, thank you for being on Twice Five Miles Radio. <laughs> thank you, James. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes our conversation with Ileana Garza-Terran. I hope you enjoyed the way she looks at the world. I certainly did. I, I, I like it when somebody disrupts the way I think, and I most especially like it when somebody does all of that disruption with a great deal of joy and enthusiasm. So Ileana brings an insight into our world of communication, our world of language, our world of writing that I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. So with the few minutes we have left before we arrive at the top of our hour, I'd like to reflect a bit on the value of disruption. So here's the definition of disruption. Disruption means a disturbance or problems that disrupt an event, activity, or a process. When you take what Ileana was discussing in our conversation and think about it a little bit more, it will become obvious that everything that you and I do is about disruption. It's difficult for me to move across the room without disrupting something. I might not see the spider that's on the floor or the carpet that I almost step on, or maybe I do step on and I don't know. That is a kind of disruption. So we are disruptive creatures by nature. 
We are creative by nature, and that's why we disrupt things. We make messes. I look at my counter right now. It's after the coffee mess. I have my half-and-half half container sitting out still. I should put it in the refrigerator. I know. I still have the coffee from Trader Joe's out. I should put that back on the shelf. I know. And... I have three rags on the counter that I will use to wipe the counter down very soon so the chi will be good again. But for right now, I'm looking across the table that's a bit messy with uh, a journal, a couple of books, a, a Bose speaker, a water bottle, and a, a bunch of other stuff that I use for my creative work. All of it is messy. It's disruptive to the eye, and yet even within this disruption, which I'm enjoying right now describing to you, I can see some kind of order. So disruption and order, we are always moving through that. T.S. Eliot in his Four Quartets says this, but to what purpose disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves? I do not know. I really don't know exactly what that means, but here we have disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves. I think Eliot is thinking about the simplicity of things. There's always a little bit of dust that can be disturbed by a breeze or by a bump or even by the rag on the counter that I will eventually wipe everything down with. Maybe I'll get a little bit of dust as I go along, disturbing the dust. Disturbance. Disturbance is a very interesting idea. And of course, there's the disturbance of your own psychology. You can be disturbed. Your perceptions can be disturbed. The way you see things or the way you think things should be can easily be disturbed. You can have a view of a person or a feeling towards a person that can be disturbed by the way circumstances change. One conversation can change everything. Your perception shifts, your ideas of how you're going to interact with that person rearrange themselves. And in the rearrangement usually comes learning. And very often what you first might think is negative turns out to be a good thing, turns out to be positive. So you have the negative and the positive working together as it always does, disruption happening. And finally, just to to close this out before we say goodbye, each thought we have, your thoughts, my thoughts, they disrupt the previous thought. So disruption may well be an ongoing natural state of being. I find it a little ironic sometimes that what I think is really important, what I think is going to happen, my perception of the way I want things to be tends to constantly change, constantly be disrupted. And so with each little disruption comes an adjustment and then another disruption and then another adjustment. I guess it's just all about the unfolding. T.S. Eliot opens his four quartets by saying these lines. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction, remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. So, disturbance, possibilities, time present and time past, the eternal now, 
all of this exists for us. And I'm grateful to have had that conversation with Ileana because she got me thinking about all of these things. And I'm grateful that you're out there listening, thinking about these things as well. I do appreciate it. And I am glad to say this is bringing us to the end of another Twice Five Miles radio show. And there will be more to come. And I hope you join me in all of the upcoming shows that I have planned. But for now, thank you so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you have any interest in Walter's music, I enjoy it. I bet you will, too. Devin Dial, thanks for managing WPVMFM. Most appreciated. You can reach me, Nave, at JamesNave.com. Nave spelled N-A-V-E. I would like to hear from you. Happy to email you back. This show is sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Project. If you want to improve your writing, ImaginativeStorm.com is a good place to check out. ImaginativeStorm.com And on that note, I'll close with a poem from my new book, 100 Days. This poem, Boy Scout Jamboree, was written on day 68 of the 100 days. Earlier this evening, I packed my carry-on case for tomorrow's flight to New York City. While folding my second shirt, followed by my third pair of jeans, I thought about my Boy Scout days in Troop 26 at the National Guard Armory on Louisiana Avenue in Asheville, North Carolina. One summer, our Scoutmaster, Sarge, drove our troop in an army bus to Camp Daniel Boone for a weekend jamboree by the Little East Fork of the Pigeon River. We pitched our tents in the grass near the split rail fence. That weekend, we identified trees, studied stars, practiced first aid, made fire by flint and steel, identified snakes, and told jokes about books that were never written, like Under the Grandstands by Seymour Butts, How to Check a Pulse by Izzy Dead, and Deep in Debt by Owen Allot. Because we packed our starched, well-pressed uniforms between cardboard and wrapped them in plastic, our troop won best dressed during the Grand March on Sunday. As we paraded across the grounds in our sparkling uniforms, flags flying, I felt sorry for the other wrinkled scouts drooping like scarecrows in a field. And this poem has a question that follows. Can you write about an event in your life that you took seriously at the time, but now seems lighthearted, even humorous? And so there you go, a little poem to close out the show. Uh, you might think that's prose instead of poetry. Well, you know, we never know. What is a poem? What is prose? What's a story? What's a memory? What's a twinkle in your eye? Regardless, the answer to any of those questions Hey, thanks for tuning in. I really, really do appreciate it. And I hope you do come back sometime very soon. And until then, who knows? Maybe I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.